0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: Hello, very glad you could spend some time here on the Country Hour today. Shortly taking a look at the key factors that are influencing grain prices this season. One, of course, is there is a lot of grain around the world right now in storage and some big crops to come off this year potentially. There's also a few political storms around the world to keep an eye on and, of course, the weather is going to have a big impact as well. All of those things really working at the moment to keep a lid on prices and we'll take a good look at that shortly. A little later today, we'll also be popping into the Swan Valley just northeast of Perth to see how the wine grapes are coping in these heatwave conditions. That's to come on the Country Hour today, 6 past 12. Kicking off today with some resources news because mining giant BHP has just announced it's considering placing its Nickel West division into a period of care and maintenance. And some analysts believe this could be a sign BHP is getting out of nickel altogether. Nickel prices have dropped 38% in the last year, forcing many of the state's operations into closure or care and maintenance. Nickel West employs about 2,500 workers in Western Australia. It has mines at Leinster, Mount Keith in the northern goldfields, the Kalgoorlie nickel smelter, and also at its Quinana refinery. In today's statement to the Stock Exchange, BHP flagged a $3.5 billion US impairment against the value of its Nickel West division. Now, basically, that means the company believes the value of Nickel West is now less than $0. Industry commentator Tim Treadgold says, while the news isn't good... It doesn't mean the death knell for the sector.
2: It's awful news for anyone working in Nickel West or in the broader nickel industry. There will be some survivors. If you've got a very, very high class mine, you may be able to produce at less than the going market. BHP's problem is that Nickel West is a very old business. Everything about it is old. It creaks and groans and it doesn't like to get up in the morning and all that sort of thing. So to revive it, which BHP has been trying to do and and doing a good job too, keeping money in to revive an old industry, only to watch the price disappear from under it. Well, they deserve points for trying, but the reality is that nickel has made fools of lots of people for a long time and BHP has just been bitten for, I think it's the third or fourth time they've been bitten by nickel. I don't think they want to go back for another round with uh, nickel and lose again. And I don't think BHP shareholders would like them to either.
3: Was it really much of a surprise?
2: Well, we all knew it was coming, but the surprise is the amount of money involved. So they're talking about writing off $5 billion worth of assets. Writing off simply means that asset is no longer worth anything. So for a big company to say its entire division, entire nickel division, I don't know the exact figures, but I assume the $5 billion has written it down to zero. So you've got 3,000 jobs, goodness knows how many mines and processing plants operating, but it now has a value of nothing. So that is a very, very powerful statement as to the health of the nickel industry in Western Australia or lack of health.
3: Now, we saw BHP over a decade ago now completely write down the value of the Ravensthorpe Nickel Operations, which has obviously since been sold to First Quantum, who started it up closed it down, started it up, and it's currently um, going into a period of care and maintenance. So, I mean, it's not unprecedented uh, in a sense, but for an, essentially the entire division, has that something that's ever been seen before?
2: It might have, but I can't remember it. Nickel is mercurial. It has extreme price movements. Now, there are lots of reasons why it has extreme price moves. You can dig that out in history books if you like. But the simple fact is at the moment, is that the world, particularly Indonesia, is producing more nickel than is needed. So uh, it's the same as any other commodity. When supply overwhelms demand, the price falls, and that's exactly what's happened. The sad part about Nickel West is that, in truth, it represents, I think it's 1% or 2% of BHP as a company. So BHP will take that loss. It's a book loss. It's just a a book entry. Real money hasn't gone and it will just sail on.
3: As you say, a small percentage of BHP's overall business. However, it's a large number of jobs in Western Australia and in particular in regional Western Australia that could be impacted here.
2: Oh yes, absolutely. Um, The human element uh, cannot be ignored. Um, The financial element is there to be seen and and nickel is not a big part of BHP. In fact, BHP has tried repeatedly to get out of nickel. It never wanted to be in it, and it's, uh, it's now on the cusp of finally getting out completely. Uh, I'd be surprised if BHP sticks with nickel west, even if uh, the price comes good. I think the management may have decided it's just not where they want to be.
3: In this statement to the market, BHP has said that As expected, they'll be placing their Cambouda concentrator into care and maintenance, but the entire Nickel West division may also go into a period of care and maintenance. So if BHP don't want a part in this anymore, Tim, I mean, could somebody else?
2: Yes. The the quick answer to your question is yes, somebody else could come in. BHP as a company does not really like being involved anymore in what are called, well, they're, they're small or marginal metals The other problem is that Indonesia really, with Chinese technology, really has found a new way to produce nickel. Russia is a big producer of nickel. Uh, There's just lots of nickel around. It's flooded the market. And the Indonesian revolution, which doesn't please some people who regard it as dirty metal, well, they're not going to stop producing it. It's, It's doing wonders for their economy. And where they're winning, we're losing. So would someone else come in and pick up BHP, pick up Nickel West? Yes. If it's available at the going price, and the going price appears to be $1. Uh,
3: Talking of prices, we know that the price of nickel itself, the commodity has fallen close to 40% over the last year, Tim. But in the last week itself, it's actually started climbing again. What on earth is going on?
2: You've got to look at a figure like that, and you're talking about the 2% increase over the last week. Uh, the problem with anything that goes down 40 and then comes up two is you could be looking at the effect of what's known as a dead cat bounce. In other words, it's fallen so far, someone's come in and said, oh, golly, that's a good, that's a good buy. Uh, I'll have some of that. And there's no reason for doing it other than because it's fallen so far. The, the cat's still dead, whichever way you look at it. It's up off the ground, but it's not breathing.
1: Mining industry commentator Tim Treadgold speaking to Tara Delangraft about the news today that mining giant BHP announced it's considering placing Nickel West division into a period of care and maintenance. And the announcement from BHP today comes ahead of the company's half-year results, which will be released on the 20th of February, and that's when more details about the future of Nickel West will be announced. 13 past
4: 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
1: Well, large supplies of grain around the world and a possible record crop about to come off in South America are keeping a lid on grain prices. That's how Dennis Vosnesinski is reading it. He's a grain market economist at the Commonwealth Bank. He says the other key factors this season, of course, will be the weather, but also any political storms. He says it may be calm now, but there are certainly a few hot spots around the world that could flare up and influence what growers are paid for their grain. The
5: storm really started with COVID and the war in Ukraine and uh, more and more politics being involved in the globally, but specifically affecting the grains industry. Right now, we just have more supply around. And because of that, we've seen this depressive impact on pricing. So even if you look at uh, the near term from this point onwards, we have possibly a record South American crop coming online. And that's after we already saw large crops last year. So at at this point, it is a calm, but... Politically nothing's changed, the world's a lot more volatile, we have more wars, we have more political interference in the grains industry, uh, and we have more unpredictable weather.
3: So it's no longer just about fundamentals, So how do farmers navigate that volatility?
5: Well, the way I approach it is I look at, okay, let's take a central view on where we think the world is heading, assume nothing too left field, and then try to poke holes through everything. (laughs) that's That's the kind of the direction I've taken with my analysis.
3: So I suppose if we start with wheat, prices aren't, I suppose, fantastic at the moment. You're expecting them to to sort of stay that way at this stage
5: if you look at global prices they've come down substantially so again they peaked when russia invaded ukraine um that that global bellwether for pricing chicago board of trade rose to an astronomical level in a very short time period ever since they've declined uh moving forward we think global prices they're largely going to stay depressed this year uh and, and the reason is we have a for example, we have a large Russian crop coming online very soon. They had two large crops just before this. Ukraine is exporting. Uh, and again, that South American crop that's going to come to market very soon, uh, it, it's possibly going to be a record. So for the time being, uh, globally, it just seems that there's there's more depressive factors on pricing as opposed to supportive.
3: And I suppose if we bring the weather into this as well here in Australia, moving away from those um, the Chicago border trade prices, If the weather does what the bomb expects it to do and if the rain does happen, there could be further downside in pricing.
5: Well, at the moment, if you speak to a lot of farmers in Western Australia, let's focus on the West uh, at, at this point, uh, it is still very dry. If you look at Albany, very dry. Parts of Esperance, very dry. Geraldton, very, very dry. Uh, so if it does stay dry, that, that would be supportive of pricing. Uh, but if you look at the bomb seasonal outlook right now, they're saying maybe over the next three months, average rainfall. So while it's dry right now, a lot of farmers say it's probably a bit too early. Uh, If we get to March and there's very decent rainfall, it could change things very quickly. If things do go the way BOM is saying and we have at least an average crop in Western Australia, yeah, that's depressive for pricing because globally uh, we have... I wouldn't say an oversupply but an, a substantial increase in supply and Western Australia is an export state so you just if it was like the east coast and you had a lot of domestic demand well in a dry year your prices can deviate substantially from what's happening globally but if you have an average crop in Western Australia you have to export to the rest of the world so you can't not be export competitive.
3: If that was to occur and prices were to dip to the tune of how much are you expecting potentially?
5: It just sounds funny that I keep saying it depends on the weather but Right now, if we're around, say, $400 per tonne, APW, uh, and we see the US dollar equivalent to around 72, 71 Australian cents uh, by year end, maybe around $350, $360 per tonne uh, at this point is what we're looking at.
3: And if we shift to the other cereal grain being barley, what do you in 2024 to bring for barley?
5: yeah so in, in in the past we've seen a pretty strong relationship both on the east Coast and west coast between APw1 wheat and feed barley so before China implemented the anti-dumping tariffs that the the discount that feed barley traded to APw1 wheat was around forty to fifty dollars per ton so that's the five-year average when China implemented those anti-dumping tariffs that went up to 70 to 90 dollars per ton depending on what port zone of Australia you look at now that China's come back that spreads come closer to what it was historically, that $50, 60 per tonne range. And if we assume that moving forward, so we get back to that normal range, uh, we'll then just take that forecast for wheat, $50 per tonne lower, and, um, and subtract that spread. Uh, so a, a similar decline for wheat we're expecting.
3: Is there any good news? Let's move to oil seeds. So for
5: canola, that is the, uh, you yeah, we're trying to look for a bright spot here. I, I, know, that, I know it's not the most rosy picture I'm painting. Uh, for canola, Uh, At this point, uh, there's a lot of supply. So let me put it this way. Yes, prices have declined considerably. The reasons have been there's been a resupply globally of soybeans uh, and of canola. Even Ukraine's been producing a lot of canola despite the war and Russia's invasion. But moving forward, as we move to year end, uh, we might actually see less canola globally than last year so Ukraine plants less than expected uh, Europe planted less than expected There was weather issues in Europe war-related issues in Ukraine Canada's expected to plant less both because pricing has fallen and uh, it is very dry in Canada it's still time to turn around but it is drier so by year-end we may see less production than last year and we may actually see an increase in demand in the North American market for canola use in biofuels and when when they need to use more locally, there's less to compete with Australia.
3: So, a potential upside there, would it be much in terms of Aussie dollars a tonne?
5: Uh, at, at this point, and of course, all subject to change of how global markets develop, but we're expecting around uh, the high 600s per tonne uh, for non GM canola free in store uh, towards year end.
3: And of course, all of this is contingent on the weather and some wild cards that are sort of out there in, uh, in, in the atmosphere as well.
5: Yeah, well, if we look into the year ahead, uh, it, well, if we just look into the future, not even the year ahead, we have the possible re-election of former US President Donald Trump. We have the issues around China and Taiwan and how that could develop. We have, again, increasingly unpredictable weather. We have sustainability policies in Europe unraveling, and we're trying to see what type of issues for market access that could cause. War in Ukraine isn't going anywhere at this point. There's just so many factors that you have to keep an eye out for. And like I said at the beginning, we look at a central view, Assuming nothing too left field. And then we look at all the reasons that it could be wrong. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do.
1: Dennis Voznesensky, he's Associate Director of Agricultural and Sustainable Economics at the Commonwealth Bank. And he was speaking to Tara DeLangraft. 20 past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across WA, streaming live on the web and on the ABC Listen app. We'll get to news headlines shortly for you. First, though, fertiliser giant CSBP has launched a new scheme where customers can pay an additional fee to offset the manufacturing-related carbon emissions associated with its urea. CSBP says it will purchase Australian carbon credit units on behalf of farmers. And ACU is currently worth around $35. And CSBP says for every tonne of urea that arrives at its sheds, 0.9 of a tonne of CO2 is generated. So if you went ahead and purchased this carbon neutral urea, how much of a dent would it make in the total greenhouse gas emissions of your grain growing operation? Well, Ben White is a research engineer with the Condinen Group. He says there's growing interest in reducing CO2 emissions, either through efficiency or by paying for offsets. And CSBP is meeting that market.
0: Oh, obviously, you know, a company will respond to what the market is asking for, so there must be some level of demand for it, I dare say, and probably that demand comes not necessarily just through the farmer, but, but the people buying the grain at the end of the day, so if we're talking about a grain product, for example, there's obviously a market for a product that's carbon neutral, I know that there's um, certainly some growers that supplied carbon neutral barley to a few maltsters and, and brewers last year, so that might be part of that picture.
6: Should point out that this doesn't cover the CO2 associated with the urea once it leaves the uh, fertilizer sheds and, and hits the paddock. But when we look at the pie chart or the breakdown of CO2 emitters in a grain production system, how does urea sit there?
0: You're right. We're talking about the, what would be referred to as the scope three fraction of the uh, of the emissions. The, the scope three tends to be the part that as growers, we can't do a lot about. Seeing this come into play probably wipes off uh, about 15% of the total greenhouse gas footprint based on some figures that we know are relevant to WA production systems. So if we look at those 148 fields of crop grown, on average, the scope 3 emissions and we've got to be careful we're talking about the co2 equivalent emissions so that could be nitrous oxides it could be methane it could be co2 that contributes about 15 percent to the total greenhouse gas footprint of a ton of grain
6: what about fertilizer on farm how does that stack
0: if we use the calculators that are available and and, uh, like the grains greenhouse gas counting framework tool that tells us that uh, if we again, if we put all those numbers in, that, that fertilizer on the field contributes about uh, n- nearly 30 to 29% to the the total footprint. So that's pretty significant. There are things we can obviously do about that, nitrification inhibitors, for example.
6: When you look at the emissions associated with grain production, though, I mean lime is about 13%, residues about 17%. Realistically, are we going to be able to get all of those figures down to zero? In
0: Australia, do you think? No, I don't think so. And it's unrealistic to think that. And I think we've got to be careful. You know, we're talking about maintaining a a sustainable production system. Mm. We want to be able to keep residue on the paddock. And and, and the fact that we might have microbial activity that's breaking down those residues, yes, they're going to release nitrous oxide. And yes, they're going to release um, methane, CO2 off off residues. Breakdown isn't counted. But I suppose the the important point to, to think about here is that we're looking at things that we can do something about whilst maintaining that sustainable production system. And, and um, even though fuel's only 10%, can we use a more fuel-efficient tractor? Yeah, we can. Is it good for our bottom line? Yes, it is. Can we use fertilisers more efficiently? Yeah, we probably can with not- things like nitrification inhibitors. Depending on the price of of uh, fertiliser at the time, it might be worth making that additional investment on, on nitrification inhibitors. And So in a lot of cases, this is all about efficiency. And that's why you know running some of your numbers through a greenhouse gas calculator can be quite eye-opening it wouldn't be un- uncommon for us to you know for uh, say a wheat crop to have you know 200 kilograms of CO2 equivalent greenhouse gas footprint for that tonne of grain or a little bit less it just depends on, on again the cropping system and the environment. Uh, GRDC have put a bit of money into uh, to looking at how we stack up on an international basis and, and there are some reports available that pitch-ups against the rest of the world and yeah in that context we um we sit quite favorably
6: it's often said in conversations around this ben but what about the co2 absorbed in crop and surely that would offset some of the emissions is that part of these calculators that growers can do
0: it's all built into the calculators absolutely and so that takes some of those things into account have got to remember that things like the co2 that is absorbed by the plant that's obviously a gas that has a greenhouse warming potential of, of one that some of the nitrous oxide that might come back up up off that paddock has a greenhouse warming potential of 265 times co2 so that's where the balance does change a little bit so yes absolutely the photosynthesis process pulls the co2 in but the residue breakdown will release things like you know methane and, and, uh, and nitrous oxide which have a, a higher Greenhouse warming potential than, than straight CO two.
6: Recently, CBH grew ten thousand tonnes of carbon neutral barley. I think you were involved in the independent accreditation of that. We've seen that, but broadly, what's the level of interest within grain growers to to grow a carbon neutral crop? Is it there?
7: Well, that's
0: probably a good question for CBH, I think, and and um, and I think you know obviously you don't go into this and, and offset those emissions without a market to go to. In, in a lot of cases, the, the offsets um, required obviously cost cost money and, and we're talking, you know, if we're at 200 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per tonne and an ACCU, for example, is, say, you know, 35 bucks, you know, we're probably, uh, there's a few dollars per tonne to offset things.
6: It's a lot, I isn't suppose, it? You do the math. Well,
0: it can, it can add up, yeah, mm. that's right. But, you know, for someone who's wanting to, you know, as I mentioned before, some of the Brewsters and uh, the Maltsters you know, who, who want to make a carbon neutral beer, for example, probably quite happy to pay that sort of figure to offset the emissions for a ton of barley so that they can stick that on the label. And, you know, ultimately, this is all driven by consumer demand, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I suppose that's that's what it's going to come back to. And some markets will probably uh, require it or, or, or want it. And we might ha- have access to those markets as a result of having this information and, and others that it's not something that they're interested in. So, yeah, horses for courses, I think.
6: Mm, there are some broader questions there really about the scale of production needed for a, a farm to be um, efficient and viable, but then also the scale of production needed to produce enough food for everyone mm. versus people, some people being able to pay for what is a, a carbon neutral product.
0: Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm pretty sure if you are someone who is starving uh, in, a, in a third world country, whether they uh, mind it too much, whether it was... Uh, a neutral meal or not I wouldn't mm. be too fast I'd mm. be pretty happy just to eat so yeah it's about that balance and and um, and again satisfying the demands of the customer where there's demand i'm I'm sure people be able to provide that, you know, with the knowledge and, and the information that, that is pulled together with, you know, some of these grain greenhouse gas uh, calculators.
1: Ben White, he's from the Condren Group, and he was speaking to Joe Prendergast. And if you want to check out those GHG or greenhouse gas calculators, just head along to the grain growers website. And CSBP has been contacted for comment. This on the text from Phil in Albany. Hey Belinda, when is Southern WA going to be drought declared? Certainly has been dry, hasn't it, Phil? We'll check weather conditions for you right around the state shortly. First, though, with an update from the newsroom, here's Jonathan Hopper.
6: Good
8: afternoon, Belinda. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has joined with the leaders of Canada and New Zealand to warn of the catastrophic consequences of Israel's planned offensive in southern Gaza. Israel has indicated it plans a large-scale military operation in Rafah, where 1.5 million Palestinians have fled since the start of the war. The leaders are urging Israel not to go ahead with the plan Warning civilians have nowhere else to go. A mining analyst says BHP's announcement today that it is considering placing its Nickel West division on care and maintenance shows the current health of the industry. BHP has told the stock market it expects to post a first half loss of 200 million US dollars from Nickel West which employs about 2,500 workers in WA. Its operations include the Kalgoorlie Nickel Smelter and Quinana Nickel Refinery. And worse than expected job figures, could increase the likelihood of interest rate cuts this year. The unemployment rates reached 4.1% in January, which is a two-year high and is up from 3.9% in December. Thanks, Belinda.
1: Thank you so much for the update, Jonathan. Half past 12.
8: You're
6: with Belinda Barrisgetti
9: on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA.
1: Still to come between now and one o'clock, we'll pop into the Swan Valley just northeast of Perth. And there have already been a couple of heat waves in the valley and the grapes in some places have struggled with that. And there's another string of sort of 40-plus degree days coming. So we'll just call into the valley and see how the wine grape growers are coping, what strategies they're putting in place. And also heading to the Pilbara region to take a look at some trials to set up a, a multi-million dollar fruit sector in the Pilbara. Will it work? We'll take a look at that shortly. First off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson is with you today. Joey let's start in the Southwest Land Division and as I was just mentioning uh, a few days coming up well today included but more ahead to 40 plus degree days for parts of the Southwest Land Division. How's it looking this afternoon and for the rest of the week?
4: Yeah, so it, one word really, Belinda, uh, or hot, I was going to say, very hot. That's two words. But, um <laughs> Yes, uh, let's go two words, very hot uh, through all of the southwest land division. We've got this west coast trough uh, that's offshore from the west coast, which means the winds are driving uh, these very hot conditions from inland WA. So uh, most areas are getting uh, the extreme heat. Uh, Swan Valley right now I heard you just talking about that that's right now 40.3 and um, still the potential to go up two or three degrees through the next few hours Um, yes a lot of locations that are certainly above that 40 degree mark and and as far as stats go for Perth um If it does get above 40 today in Perth, which it's uh, a degree off right now, it will be um, the most amount of days in February to get above 40 ever. So we're certainly in um, a hot pattern. Um, As we move on um, to tomorrow, um, we have that trough move inland. So... The western districts are going to cool down a little bit. So through parts of the central west, west and the southwest and uh, the low west, those districts will cool down. But the places on the east of that trough, so the eastern parts of the Wheat Belt and eastern parts of the Great Southern, the Goldfields, they're going to remain very hot. And then as we move on to the weekend, a new trough develops down the west coast and uh, it uh, pushes offshore just like what we've got today. So all that heat that's just been pushed inland is going to head straight back towards those western districts and and be throughout the southwest land division. So uh, Sunday, Monday uh, are going to be uh, temperatures in... Many locations exceeding 40. So, um, the associated heat wave warnings are out for that and they cover not just the Southwest Land Division Bell, they, they cover most of the state. So, uh, we are in for a hot spell and it's looking like there is, apart from a bit of relief on the Western District's. Tomorrow, there's um, relief next Wednesday where we see a bit of a flush out of those hot temperatures with uh, cooler southerlies coming into the Southwest Land Division, Bell.
1: And just um, speaking of the winds, then, in terms of any fire concerns, what have we got over the next sort of four days? Anything to be particularly concerned about with the winds?
4: Yeah so the, the main concern is today I think there's eight districts that have fire weather warnings um, so that is more driven from the really hot temperatures and the really drier conditions uh, the winds have been fresh and gusty this morning but they've eased out a little bit but it's mainly the heat that's driving um, those warnings and things do ease down a little bit through those western districts uh, for tomorrow but through the south um, we've got some uh, fresh winds tomorrow through parts of the Great Southern so there's going to be a couple of fire weather warnings then and, and then once we get to um, Sunday those fire weather warnings pick up in a number of districts as those temperatures start to soar.
1: Yeah, of course. All right, look, let's move further afield and look into northern and eastern paths. And, Joey, I did see there is this slow-moving tropical low in the Gulf of Carpentaria, which sort of straddles the Northern Territory and northwest Queensland. Could that turn into a cyclone and affect our weather here in Western Australia?
4: Yeah, so certainly there is a risk that it could uh, develop into a cyclone, but it is tracking over Northern Territory at the moment and once it's firmly over land, then the risk of it in the short term developing into a tropical cyclone, it decreases somewhat. Um, But the models have this system moving over the Kimberley uh, potentially as early as late Sunday into Monday. So the first risk is it's going to bring a fair bit of rain. So there's the potential for this system to bring... Um, significant rain 1 to 200 millimetres as it tracks across the Kimberley and then um, there is then further risk from mid to late next week of uh, that system continuing to move off the Kimberley coast and and once the system moves um, over waters there's the potential for that uh, to develop into a tropical cyclone. So at this stage we're deeming it about a 10 to 20 percent chance of it developing into a tropical cyclone um, from mid to next or mid to late next week. However, there's a fair bit to go between now and then, and there's a few other things at play, which is increasing the uncertainty. But the short-term risk for WA is uh, the potential for flooding as early as Sunday. Bill,
1: and then uh, as far as the uh, temperatures go, hot also.
4: Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, for the north, um, it is certainly hot. Uh, the heat wave warning uh, covers around uh, that broom area. So, um, yeah, certainly hot. Um, and the only relief through the north is if you do get some showers and thunderstorms to cool things down. But outside of any rain, it's hot, though. Joey,
1: thank you for that. Appreciate it. Going through those details this afternoon, 23 to 1. Uh, Richard Hudson in the studio. He's going through the rainfall figures shortly, but first, just picking up on a few of those fire the warnings that joey just mentioned
9: yeah there's only three fires burning in wa that are currently at an advice level i'm just hoping the winds don't pick up because on a day like today any of those could escalate but because of the extreme fire danger today a fair few shires have got a total fire ban in place so in the midwest gascoyne region that's karnamar chapman valley Karoo, Dandaragan, greater geraldton Irwin, mingenew mora Morrowa, Northampton, Perenjori, Three Springs, and Victoria Plains. Fair few in the metro region, the Perth Metro region, and that's uh, Armadale, Chittering, Gingin, Gosnells, Calamunda, Mundaring, Swan, and Wanneroo. And then in the Goldfields Midlands region, Dalwallinu, Quarter, Two J. Wongan In the lower southwest region, region, Boyup Brook Greenbushes, uh, Bridgetown Greenbushes, Donnybrook Bailing Up and then in the Great Southern Region, Broom Hill Tamble Up, No Up and Katanning. So you know the rules with a total fire ban, no lighting of fires or cooking camping, no hot work such as grinding and welding and no four-wheel driving or quad biking off-road. And if you need more information or if you need to know if your shire has a total fire ban in place, just search Emergency and WA and and you'll find all the information you need. Just remember, it's your responsibility to check to see if your shire has a harvest and vehicle movement ban, because that also affects the use of off-road vehicles and the use of any machinery for agricultural purposes as well. So a number of shires do have a harvest ban in place at the moment. Chittering, Mingenew, Mundaring, Nanup, City of Swan and Yalgoo. But as far as the rainfall goes, it's pretty similar to what it's been in the last week. So the only real rain is up in the north. So in the Kimberley, Bedford Downs Airstrip 24, Curtin Airport 14, Dampier Downs Airstrip 7, Tobisa 10, Diggers Rest 45, Ellenbrae 10, Emma Gorge 51, Gibb River 34, Kilto Station 16, Kingston Rest 43, Cundinara had between five and seven across a number of locations. Liveringa Station, 10. Marion Downs, 17. Mount Barnett, 11. Old Mornington Homestead, 8. Theta, 12. Troughton Island, 21. And Wyndham, 28. In the Pilbara, Mount Stewart had 8. And then, again, no rainfall at all anywhere else in Western Australia. It does sound like there's a bit more rain on the way, or there could be, if that tropical low in the Gulf of Carpentaria does what Joey reckons it's going to do. Um... And someone who's pretty familiar with rain in that top end of Australia is Kimberley rule reporter Alice Marshall, who's only just got back to Kununurra after a long and, I dare say, a pretty frustrating trip home, Alice.
10: Yes, afternoon, Richard, it has been uh, frustrating is probably the right word to use. I, I went home for Christmas and home for me is northwest New South Wales at a place called Walgett. My parents have a sheep farm there. And I made the decision to drive home based on pretty much uh, regional airfare costs being I would have had to fly to Darwin, Darwin to Brisbane, Brisbane to Moray and then a two-hour drive from there. So it just was ridiculous. And I made the decision to drive home and then promptly got trapped there between flooding in in northwest Queensland and then flooding in the territory as well and had to um operate out of the Toowoomba, ABC Toowoomba office for a long period of time while I was trapped over east.
9: Well, you mentioned those flooded roads. They were quite serious. I mean, we were reporting on those because suppliers couldn't get through into the Kimberley from the east, but levels obviously went down enough for you to try to drive back. How was the trip itself?
10: Yeah, it was a bit of a logistical nightmare trying to work out which roads were flooded at what time and whether I made the leap and started the drive or waited for all the highways to open before even starting what was going to be a a four-day journey. At one stage, I was looking at the Landsborough Highway into Cloncurry being closed, and the alternative route would have been to take the Flinders Highway around from Julia Creek to Cloncurry. And at the same time as those two major northwest Queensland highways being closed, I was also looking at the Victoria Highway being closed from Catherine to Kununurra, which was, as you mentioned, the key problem that was stopping a lot of supplies... We talked about cotton seed at one stage, not being able to get into Cunanara for the upcoming cotton planting and also all of those that fruit and veg that comes over into WA from the east. the The way that it worked was it sort of all everything all sort of trickled into place, but um it did make for roads that were only very recently opened when I was going through, and it meant that there was still plenty of water over roads. There was still plenty of stock out on roads, um, obviously fences and stuff coming down and people not having time to get around all of their horses and cattle, especially um, the Victoria Highway between Catherine and Kununurra. Going through Timber Creek was, yeah, there was stock everywhere. It meant for a very slow trip. Was the water well. still
9: pretty high there when you were going through?
10: Oh, yeah. It was incredible to see, and it's something that... um. I'd of course felt like I was so overexposed to um to all flooding content. I was sort of watching every single chopper pilot video of the the high flood waters when I was trying to work out when to leave. But um, but seeing it in in person as we were driving, seeing where those water levels got to, which were sort of way, way, way above road level. And then the roads are anyone who's driven that road knows that the roads are built up really high. The town's called Timber Creek for a reason. It's sort of everyone's very aware that um, that in the north, anywhere that's sort of right next to a body of water is likely to get flooded. So to see the the heights that the water got to at a place that's very prepared for flooding was so, mm. it was just amazing. It would have been amazing to see in person when the water was up high like that.
9: Now you weren't just on your own, you had a a, a few things and <laughs> animals with you, didn't you? Yeah.
10: yeah, so one of the benefits of um being so delayed in my trip back was what was planned to be a trip, a four day trip on my own, turned into a convoy with um another bloke who was heading back to a station in the West Kimberley. Uh, I of course, by joining him, signed up to convoying with someone who was carting three horses in a in a float as well as he had a couple of dogs on the back of his ute and ev- even a puppy in the cab of his ute and then I also had my border collie in my car so it i think a circus would probably be a pretty good <laughs> word to describe it I was also carting a tinny so um we did mean that we were going at sort of the same pace on the road but yeah it was a lot of um a lot of animals <laughs> to and manage. one
9: and one of the horses was from your family property in New South Wales. How did it go with the journey?
10: yeah so um one of the horses that is my responsibility um he my little stock horse who wasn't getting a lot of work um at our family place in, in Walgut, I decided to chuck him on the back of the, the spare bay in the float so he could get a bit of work on stations. Um, chasing some cows, but it did mean that this poor little horse from a very dry and dusty part of northwest New South Wales, who, um, who doesn't see a lot of water, all of a sudden got dumped into spelling yards sort of night after night along the journey that was sort of calf deep in, in water. And he was, um, he didn't know what had hit him. He was very uncertain getting off the float. He didn't believe me when I said that it was a flat bottom, hard bottom, <laughs> not that he was going to sink into black soil black mud.
9: <laughs> well, you made it. Can the supply trucks actually get through now? I mean, I know your vehicles and what you were towing got through, but can the big trucks go through now?
10: Yes, yeah. everything can now go through. There was a stage where the Victoria Highway was only open to light vehicles. That's over now. We, we didn't see very many trucks. We actually didn't see very many vehicles um on the road at all and i think that's got a bit to do with the fact that the wet season has been so good that stations aren't really calling for ringers and and station workers to come up yet because they're just enjoying all the grass and there's not too much work on but yes all everything that needs to be on the road can be on the road as far as i'm aware
9: well it's good to have you back in wa and i'm glad you got back safely
10: It's great to be back.
1: What a journey. Kimberley Rural reporter Alice Marshall telling Richard Hudson about her trip um, back to the Kimberley, back to Kununurra. What an experience. 14 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Well, wine grape growers in the Swan Valley are bracing themselves for another burst of hot weather, 43 degrees today possibly, followed by a couple of cooler days before the mercury heads back up over 40 degrees potentially on Sunday and Monday. Some growers in the valley are irrigating their crops to try and save their vines, but there are still a lot of dry bunches And some growers have lost up to a quarter of their crop. Danelle Tyler from Tyler's Vineyard says irrigation has kept her vines alive.
11: So we've got Grenache, old Grenache vines, and we've been here 27 years. The vines were up until 2022. Um, We've only just started irrigating in the last year, which has virtually saved our vine. How
12: significant has that irrigation project for your crop been?
11: Yeah, that's actually saved our grapevines. Our grapevines would not have survived without them because the water table has dropped so significantly that these beautiful old vines would not have survived without the irrigation
12: We've had these rolling heat waves come through Perth. How's yes. that impacted your vines, or have you sort of managed to skirt around that with the recent irrigation?
11: The irrigation's helped, but we still get a lot of dry bunches because they're exposed a little bit to the to the sun, so they just dry out
12: with the heat. And how's that impacting your prospective harvest?
11: So this year we're very fortunate, and we've had a good crop. But I know so speaking to other growers. I know for a fact that they've lost close to a quarter of their crop due to this heat wave being unrelenting.
12: And what does that do to a vineyard's, I guess, bottom dollar? A quarter of a crop is a significant amount to lose.
11: Absolutely. It it impacts big time because the Swan Valley are made up of a lot of smaller type vineyards where we make a living and protect the grapevines in the valley. Unfortunately, losing that, amount of fruit means our profits are
1: down. Danelle Tyler from Tyler's Vineyards. Well, not all growers are irrigating their vines and the dry conditions are taking a toll on those great yields. Brie Lavelle is the co-owner of Swan Valley Vines, or Wines, I should say, and she says this season has been unique
13: it uh was pretty intense short and intense so we were picking we rarely ever do we pick whites and reds in the same week but we did this year yeah. so that was pretty historical but we do pick up quite early anyway so the first week of january is quite common for us in the swan being a bit higher in the foothills and all dry grown vines
12: a number of the the wine growers said the the rolling heat waves have caused a, a fair bit of an impact to their quantities is that something that you found across yours
13: we did. Um, I mean, yeah, the quality of fruit was still good, but, yeah, much lower yields. Um, and then because our vines ourselves, we've been growing organically for eight years, um, uncertified, but they are essentially bush vines, so they are yielding lower amounts with not being irrigated. But, yeah, the, being dry-growing, they're still getting to that riverbed just, which we're lucky about. Others have had to put irrigation in.
12: You were saying other growers you know are starting to irrigate?
13: Yeah, a lot. Of, a lot are just because they just can't risk not having um, the yields we've solely grow organically we have been doing for eight years so that's predominantly uh, one of the oldest finds of chen blanc in um, swan valley which almost coming up to hundred uh, year old chen blanc so that's dry grown and then we've yeah um, our flagship red is our grown ash and then we um, have been managing two other vineyards locally which and we do buy some more in from the Taylor's Vineyard, which is um is irrigated. But we're lucky to have that old vines.
12: On your personal vineyard, uh, are you considering mm-hmm. irrigating, you know, if the weather continues the way it's been?
13: We have been looking at it. Um, we've looked at cover crops and yeah, we're very big on eco-agriculture. So we're looking at ways that we can preserve the water. And now we're looking at doing some um, co-crops, like putting a lot more trees, so making it more of a forest, ways that we can increase you know, our yields and preserve the vines, but if that means ripping up some vines, unfortunately, to preserve the others with other plants, then we, we might be looking at that as well.
12: Uh, with the heat that we've had, how are you looking forward to next year? Yeah,
13: <laughs> um, we're just really hoping we get that rainfall up this winter. Um, that's what we get hopeful for every year. But I think what really impacted us this year was that we had that really early um, heat wave in September and November, and just the rainfall was just very low. So fingers crossed we can get a bit more yearly rainfall. That will make a big difference.
1: It sure will. Co-owner of Swan Valley Wines, Brie Lavelle. Wine grapes are also struggling further south. Shelley Code is from Jingala Wines in Perongarup, about 50 kilometres north of Albany. She says some of her grapes were cooked.
14: The heat has certainly um, caused some grapes to, let's say, cook. <laughs> Um, in some of our varieties, we've lost a percentage of fruit, as I would think that most people anywhere in the state have lost a percentage of fruit to fruit that's been exposed to the sun because it was 44 degrees up here in the shade mm. at the pronger up. And, you know, three days of 39, 44 and 38 with no breeze, that's what the week before last did some damage. This last week, when it's very similar, but we had a breeze. So that did no further damage whatsoever.
12: Those hot days, the the amount of fruit that you lost, is that gonna be a significant impact to your upcoming harvest?
14: It'll be a bit of an impact to our coming income. <laughs> and harvest, yes. Um, but you know, that's nature. There's nothing we can do about it, Andrew. Sad as it is.
12: And uh, are yeah, you gearing up for harvest? What's the the plan for the next few months to come? Uh, we
14: are for the earliest harvest by a month. No, they've already started harvesting. We are going to be picking machine harvesting towards the end of next week. That will take off all of our whites that aren't hand-picked. Yes, our Riesling, Semillon, and Sav Blanc.
12: And how are you feeling about the vintage this year? Is it looking good?
14: Oh, it's looking fantastic. Fortunately, the grapes that got cooked have shriveled up and will drop off. So they won't have any effect on the wine whatsoever because they won't be in the wine. Just because of the the dryness and the continually warm days, our vintage, our harvest is just going to be about a month early.
1: Shelley Code from Jingala Wines in the Prongarup, getting stuck into the harvest early this year due to the hot conditions. That report from Andrew Chounding. Seven minutes to one here on the Country Hour. A state government trial shows a multi-million dollar fruit sector could be developed inland in Western Australia's hot, dusty Pilbara region. But some financial backing might be needed for things like water access and land tenure. A range of stone fruit and grapes have been grown successfully near Newman as part of a deep herd trial which started in 2018. Project manager Chris Shelfout says they managed to grow all sorts of things in a location better known for its iron ore.
7: Mainly low-chill peaches and low-chill nectarines, um, but we did also include a few uh, low-chill plums and and apricots as well. Evidently we, we got a good result and, and subsequently you know, that season, um, we got some, some good fruit on the, on the tree. Obviously, Newman
15: is, you know, right on the western desert there. Not much rainfall, very dry. How did you go about sourcing water for the trial?
7: Fortunately, you know, it was a you know, relatively small-scale trial, so we didn't need huge volumes of water. So we actually just um, simply accessed the, uh, uh, the town water supply in Newman quality of that water would be uh, similar to, you know, the water quality that's been pumped out of a lot of the, um, the mines, you know, in that Newman area. That's one of the reasons why we, we ended up at the Newman location with the broader work that we're doing in in the Transforming egg and the Pilbert project, you know, trying to understand the opportunities to utilise some of that surplus water coming out um, of, the, of the mines in that area.
15: What were you hoping to get out of the trial? You know, is this a scalable process? You know, is there a commercial potential for stone fruit in places like Newman?
7: You know, I, be- I believe there's potential. So as we sort of discussed initially it was it was really about proving you know sort of trying to prove the concept that you know will these things will these trees grow and and can we get you know reasonable quality fruit from you know from trees in this location at this stage you know we believe there's a, a modest sort of gap in the in the domestic market where we're importing fruit from, say, the United States or, or perhaps the East Coast early in the season. If we could sort of manage the crop agronomy right and, and try and get some of this fruit early into the uh, into the West Australian domestic market, then there's probably you know a, a couple million dollar market opportunity there to, um, to to develop.
15: Are there any challenges you f- foresee in developing that industry if if it was to go ahead?
7: Yeah, look, pro- you know, probably the largest challenge um, would be. Getting, getting the land tenure right and, and, and developing the water resource and 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 that sort of land package um, to be able to start that. Is there
15: an opportunity for the mining companies in the Pilbara not to lead the way, but maybe play a role in helping with those land tenure and water usage issues?
7: Oh look, I think yeah, I think they would be um, you know integral to um, land and water development, given you know their role as you know the tenure that they hold in the area. The, um, the activity they have in terms of dewatering watering and 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 how they manage that sort of surplus um, surplus water, you know, a number of the mining companies have explored agricultural opportunities to utilise some of that surplus mining water. We have seen over, over in the West Pilbara, um, Rio Tinto's got a um, two agricultural projects where you know, they're producing um, fodder and things like that. So I think there's yeah definitely. A role to play and, and, and a level of you know willingness um, to support these sort of developments.
1: Chris Shelfout from the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development speaking to Tom Robinson. Now, this stone fruit trial was bar- based on Mardu Farm. It's a property which hosts Aboriginal-led social programs, and Mardu Farm Manager Angela Whitmott says the success of the trial brought a lot of happiness to their community
16: actually tasting them and actually seeing the sheer number of fruit that we had on these trees, yeah, was was pretty awesome, especially as you're standing amongst the red dirt. You know, it's not what you sort of expect.
15: What did you get out of the trial? Why did you sign up in the first place? And I guess has it changed or been of any benefit to what you do
16: now? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, when when you're talking about community gardens, for example, you know, having uh, an orchard, uh, in the Pilbara that's producing, you know, significant numbers of um, stone fruit, peaches, plums, nectarines, uh, the table grapes. You know, what what a fantastic thing to have. Um, you know, we had so much at one stage that we had to open it up to the wider community and, um, you know, invite people down to just come and enjoy it. So, you know, just from that side and then also just the exciting side of, um, you know, bringing the school groups along to come and look at, you know, this fruit being grown on the trees, being able to pick it. I think one year... Um, some of the teachers took some home and made some, you know, jams and preservatives, pr- preserves and things, things like that. Um, but then also our very exciting part was um, for the people that work down at Maru Farm and for a lot of them it's, um, you know, sort of their first job or, you know, maybe they've had some other challenges with addiction and other things like that or um, complex things that exist in the Pilbara. Four of them started and completed their traineeships in horticulture. So that meant that they came to work you know, consistently, regularly, over an extended period of a good few years with perseverance and endurance, um, you know, what they were exposed to and continue to be exposed to is just outstanding.
1: Maru Farms, Angela Wilmot, and just talking about that trial that was done, uh, it was still going. It's a state government trial and it showed that a multi million dollar fruit sector could be developed inland in WA's hot Pilbara region. Uh, But they might need a little bit of money just to help with things like water access and land tenure. Uh, Just repeating today's top stories, mining giant BHP has just announced it's considering placing its Nickel West division into a period of care and maintenance. And there are some analysts who believe this could be a sign that BHP is getting out of nickel altogether. As we've discussed here before in the country, our nickel prices have dropped 38% in the last year, and that's forcing many of the state's operations into closure or into care and maintenance, and now BHP taking a good look at things too. Great to talk to you today. We'll do it all again tomorrow. See ya.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.
12: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.